Hi, Kevin. Welcome back to the show. Hi, Adam. Yes, I'm very happy to be here again. And you still uh, remember your first computer? Uh, yeah, I don't know what I told you back then. What it was, uh, probably a 386 or something. But I still, I still remember it. So I remember it uh, visually what it was. I don't remember what actually was in. It's just the second factor authentication on the podcast that I really know that you are not like a fake AI. So you're the real Ke Kevin. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you have the best title ever. You are the head of blockchain research, right? Or no, blockchain yeah. blockchain lab. Blockchain lab, or sometimes I say research group, whatever. It's a bit fluent, the title, maybe, yes. But so what is it? What is the research group? I mean, what does it mean? So which research group is it? Is it the university or where are you now? Yeah, exactly. I'm at the Westfalen University of Applied Sciences, which is a small university here in Gelsenkirchen in Germany. Mm -hmm. And um, there at the Institute of Internet Security, an institute inside the university, there I was um, brought in basically to, to build up this blockchain lab there, this blockchain research group. So it's academic research. Okay. So you started the lab? Uh, I basically started, yes. So the professor kind of called me uh, and said, um, okay, do you want to come in? We have a lot of uh, open positions to fill, build up this lab or build up this research group. Uh, and if you want, also do your PhD while, you, while you're at it, basically. Okay. And, and you're doing your PhD or? Yeah, I'm, I'm doing it. But uh, the PhD I'm doing in uh, at the uh, RWTH Aachen University, because okay. in Germany, you can't do a PhD alone at an applied sciences university. So it's a cooperative uh, PhD there. Yeah. What's the title of your PhD? So it is uh, in uh, distributed systems engineering, and uh, there is no concrete title, but the working title is basically using uh, blockchain or blockchain integration, distributed ledger technology integration for improving uh, integrity and transparency of scientific research processes. Ah, so what I, okay. So it sounds to me like what you are doing is if someone writes a research research paper, you can backtrack who wrote it when and, and what, right? So it's like a blockchain-based directory of research papers or uh, of research, not research papers, or how research happened, right? Exactly, yes. So not only the paper, which is the final artifact yeah. that comes out of the process, but the idea is to track the whole process and continuously record any artifacts that get created during it. So basically having kind of an audit protocol or in real world, we have those mm -hmm. lab notebooks. So mm -hmm. researchers, they have this lab notebooks and they just record at the end of the day what they did. Sometimes they are required by certain laws or patent regulations to actually do this or their lab says they have to do this. And having something similar, um, yeah, basically uh, supported by something like blockchain or DLT um, for not solving all the problems, but maybe further digitalizing this uh, problem and thereby allowing for better solutions to emerge. Oh, this is almost like a GitHub for researchers, right? Or yeah, Git? Yeah. That Git for researchers, because if I have to write my final commit per day and with the blockchain, you can actually aggregate everything in a tree, not tree, maybe tree-like structure. And so you can backtrack like a Merkle tree, right? What happens when... So it's it's like you like you read my last paper, which I presented this week, actually. Like we, we talk about uh, this concept. It's ex exactly like this. So okay. um, you're, you're taking or is like the current version of the protocol, let's say like this, you take a set of, of files, basically, you create the Merkle tree, you put the root in the blockchain. Bam. So that's the, the simple uh, view of the protocol. And um, then basically every day you chain it uh, to like the next entry, you chain it to the previous entry. And um, also I like we can um, kind of distinguish or the protocol is supposed to distinguish between uh, the data and, and code and execution environment. Mm -hmm. uh, conceptually so conceptually that, okay yeah not not uh, enforced or not uh, executing it already yeah but that in the future you can uh, have a more semantic layer where you say okay this is data mm -hmm. this is uh, this is code and execution environment like docker containers whatever and if you would bring them together by resolving those hashes to some kind of distributed storage maybe or whatever you could in theory replicate the um, um the state or whatever like at least computational, for ah. computational things you can do it. Yeah. So you can go, you are going even farther. It's not just about describing the research, it's also description and execution of the research, right? Uh, yes, but uh, just the vision of it, yeah, or like bringing the potential for this into the protocol because in reality it would become quite, or it 
or let's say like this, having a generic way to capture all ways that research can be executed is super hard, nearly impossible. So there is existing stuff on this workflow, uh, description languages and so on. Um, and also some others that bring this whole story of like Jupyter notebooks together mm -hmm. with Docker environments and so on together. But um, the first step is basically, okay, making this technically possible to in the future add a semantic layer on the protocol, basically. To but I got immediate, do this, yeah. immediately another idea. So uh, I think the the ex execution of, of something is... A I mean, maybe in research, the problem you have is that the environment is stateful, right? You cannot just have a Docker container because what you will have also automate, you know, the entire database and whatever, which is harder to, to achieve. But what you could do is you could use your research later and create something like, you are aware of Terraform? Terraform, for yes, instance? Sure, sure. So, mm -hmm. Something like a Terraform with documentation for the cloud. So you could actually have like, you know, a mix of documentation and execution to set up and an clean environment in any cloud you like. So this could work, right? Yeah, and um, you, can, you can solve this problem on different levels. Of course, we can dream about the 100% automation. Yeah. Uh, we, we don't need to achieve this in the first step. Like at first already like having those things in place that um, human reviewers or whoever like could manually or semi automatically take those things and uh, makes it easier to replicate. That would already be a big improvement. Mm -hmm. And um, at the same time, so I um, don't know if you're aware of it, but in general, we have a very big uh, repre uh, reproducibility crisis in science, especially in the nature science and medical research and so on, which comes from different reasons. P-hacking, people are not publishing the raw data. Uh, often they are not really faking the results, but kind of tuning them to make them look better. So, and uh, with this kind of, of protocol, what uh, one could envision that um, not necessarily there will be automated processes that would find those problems, but the fact that it's theoretically auditable and uh, in history you can like read uh, or reconstruct what happened, that this kind of mitigates the problem by making it less likely for the people to cheat because mm -hmm. they could theoretically be caught on it. Yeah, so yeah like traceability, right? Effects, yeah. Yeah. yeah, traceability. Exactly. And uh, you mentioned Merkle tree. Merkle tree is something like you uh, have a tree which is based on the content and not on, on, on technical IDs. So if I have a, let's say a file in Git and I commit the file, so the, high, the, the content is hashed and the, and the ID is used as the commit ID. So what it means, if I would modify the file afterwards, the hash would change. And this is how traceability happens, right? So it's just my yeah. rough understanding. Very good. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so most of the time the Merkle tree uses a cryptographic hash mm -hmm. that is like you, you flip one bit and the hash becomes completely different. Mm -hmm. Um, which is for some things very good and for other things it's very bad because then you can't uh, uh, kind of correlate files that are actually the same yeah, exactly, file yeah. from a human perspective. So for this, we are looking at a different um, kind of identifiers. They are calling, uh, called ISCCs, International Standard Content Codes, which are mm -hmm. on the way to also become, become an ISO standard. Uh, so they are working draft right now and they are kind of a multi-component or multi-dimensional code. So four dimensions, one being a cryptographic hash, but one being, for example, a perceptive hash. A so, perceptive hash for an image is like, if image looks the same, they have a very similar hash. Ah, close. So you are not only interested whether the document was modified, what, rather than whether it was significantly modified, right? So if you, if you change uh, mm -hmm. color or font, you, you don't care. Uh, you just care about the content, for instance, right? Exactly. For certain use cases, yeah. it's very, very yeah. useful, like uh, in the, ra in the area of copyright and so on. And all those uh, media you have flying around in the, um, uh, internet, of course, yeah. For the scientific use case, um, not sure if this is so over important, but um, for for the final paper, it is more important. For example, yeah, because there are so many variants of a of a paper that are all the same paper actually, but they mm -hmm. are just maybe differently formatted, etc. Yeah. Yeah. So now I suspect NFTs are your fault, right? <laughs> uh, yes. Yeah, so so of course I, I um, looked into this also a lot and. Um, especially also the problems of it, like yeah. the theoretical potential there is. So I think it's not that that bad from a nerdy perspective, but of course the execution, the implementation we see right now is, uh, I don't know if I would say scammy or whatever, but it's not very well thought out. 
Yeah. Of course, uh, those things are completely missing. Uh, those yeah. licensing stuff and so on. And for the listeners, is uh, NFT is like non-fungible token. And what it means is uh, you get a hash for for a digital good or art and you can buy it and then it belongs to you and actually to, 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 to anyone else as well. But you have actually the hash of the commit. So this is this is the this is the idea, the the cryptographic pointer to the origin good, right? Not even like this, yeah. Oh, so, okay. Uh, Not even like this. <laughs> so. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, in, in practice, maybe, but uh, actually, so in, in, uh, in these Ethereum NFTs, which are the, the most famous ones right now, um, they are simply a single ID that doesn't necessarily have to be a hash. So they are just an ID oh. that is more or less uh, um, unique in the context of this one uh, smart contract in, in um, Ethereum. And then, so that that is then the NFT. Yeah. So you just have the number. That's all. Yeah, this is even all. worse. This is like yeah, sub. It's even worse. This is like commit in subversion and the unique identifier yeah. of subversion. And the in that in the in the commit message, there is no now the picture belongs to you. This is done yeah. NFT. So, okay. So we don't even need yeah. a git to have NFTs. We only need subversion. Is enough, right? Yeah, yeah. So, but luckily there is at least a, an extension, but not all of them implemented. But some have it. It's called metadata extension. Okay. The metadata extension allows to connect this ID mm -hmm. to an uh, URI. Um, okay. Okay. This any is more kind of URI. Okay. So it could be HTTP URL or IPFS, interplanetary files. Um, so then if it's an HTTP URI there, then this can uh, normally, or it can, or it should point to a metadata JSON file, but it doesn't have to. It can point every, anywhere, yeah? But there is a semi-standard that it should point to a JSON file. And then in the JSON file, you might have a hash Mm -hmm. and maybe even a link to the image. Okay. Now, let's just assume there is just an HTTP uh, URL in there. Mm -hmm. Then obviously, if you control the server that is serving yeah. the uh, content, you can change it anytime without yeah. it being reflected in the uh, uh, blockchain whatsoever. Yeah. So it's super uh, no integrity there. Yeah. But again, there are theoretically extensions where you then also add the head connect the hash or an IPFS hash to the NFT uh, that is possible, but it's not standardized. And some NFTs do it, some don't, and it's like a super mess. Yeah, uh, it is at the beginning always is, you know, super mess of everything. So, but now it's super mess with bundled with super hype, which is, uh, which is yeah. particularly interesting. <laughs> Very good. So actually I wanted to start the discussion completely different. So what interests me, if you started the research lab, what was your first line of code or what was already the first week? What you did in the first week? I think nothing, right? So just getting your documents right. And uh, so how, how it starts, you know? So, so, so it's, um, yeah, it's like public service sector now yeah. in Germany. Yeah. And uh, there, uh, I think the first week I worked on documents for getting my working laptop mostly. Okay. <laughs> like so, filling out documents and those kind of things. Yeah. This is what I suspected. So what was the first line of code? Like, let's say a couple of weeks, you were able to open your first terminal. Um, this was probably uh, running an uh, Ethereum uh, network stuff with, with Docker. So these were, were the first things. Um, so you installed Ethereum uh, at the university first, right? Uh, actually, just on my on my laptop, on my okay. machine, yeah, with, with Docker, yes, yes. These were the first things. And then uh, also very quickly, one of the first, like, more major and useful things was that uh, we joined an uh, um, Ethereum network that's not mm -hmm. Ethereum main network, but, like, a different one that is run by research uh, institutes, mm -hmm. which is also Ethereum-based. So, basically, doing the uh, infrastructure stuff to set this up and, yeah, have this uh, running. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and and what, yeah, okay, this was, like, uh, infrastructure and you wrote any code or what was the idea? So, what you would like to implement first, you know, so... So, this was... Um, and you use test containers uh, for that to start the dockers? Of course, right? Uh, uh, no, no. This is still like something I always wanted to do, but oh. I, I never did. And then I found someone else already did it. <laughs> oh, okay. So, yeah, yeah. Actually, a lot of, uh, I did was infrastructure stuff, not really writing code. Like everything is kind of already there. Yeah. You just put the infrastructure there and build the networks or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, then if you want to get into the coding, what you, what you do, and that was one of the things I... That is a funny thing, yeah. yeah. One of the things I did with one of my students, we also made a small paper about it. So also what I told in the beginning, this idea of... Um, can you send me the paper? Uh, uh, link to yeah, the paper. Yeah. So just, yeah, just you know, yeah. afterwards, so we can put it to the show notes, okay? Uh, yes, yes. Let me let me make a, a note for this, yes. Uh, paper, blah, blah. 
Klar. Ja, cool. So, um, this uh, whole blockchain for science idea uh, I, I had already in the beginning. So, when we joined this um, academic blockchain network, they already had a service for Uh, certifying research data so they didn't connect them yet in a, in a chain but they put basically a hash of a single document on the blockchain so that was their initial proof of concept they already had implemented and they had a web api for this using a web api is not very blockchain like but they just had it so mm -hmm. um, it's kind of delegating the uh, a trust into this app api but it's okay you can do it uh, so and then what i thought okay many uh, researchers and scientists they use matlab Mm -hmm. to do uh, scientific stuff so let's write a matlab plugin to do exactly this that you can kind of do it as part of your code like your code runs and then automatically at the end of the code it would kind of um, put the hash then there using this web api so we looked into this like how do you do stuff for matlab and i don't know if you ever use matlab is kind of weird but it's actually java based in a mm -hmm. lot of um, components so then we found out okay in MATLAB, you can just, in the MATLAB script, say, okay, now I'm starting to write Java code, and then you can add Java code and Java classes. Not bad. Uh -huh. Yeah, so you can 100% intermix it, and that brings a lot of more sanity into programming for MATLAB. Because MATLAB, <laughs> <Okay>. is, <laughs> so it's, MATLAB is very, very special, and if you are like a normal programmer, it's very strange to use. Okay. So it's not very idiomatic to how you I used to programming language, at least from my experience. So then, since we could go into into Java there, this made it much easier. And then we implemented um, this stuff using just classic Java and just implementing the HTTP, HTTP API. And that mm -hmm. was our first real thing we did that was not so blockchain specific. It was just interacting with a, a web API, basically. Yeah. So this um, Java 11 or what you used? You can use more than Java or? Oh, good question. So back then, definitely it was Java 8. Um, okay, so but you Java... Will be, you will be limited to what like the uh, MATLAB is, is running. So MATLAB is uh, running in a GVM, I think, or okay. at least parts of it. So And I thought it's a C. Good. I didn't knew that MATLAB is actually a Java app, so which is interesting. Yeah. So uh, I'm, I'm very sure that the front end is in Java. Mm -hmm. So the GUI and... Um, Yeah, obviously a lot of stuff is executed in Java, but then some modules will uh, go out into C and C++ modules. Yeah, I assume it's something like this. Yeah. So, um, what, what I uh, so it's not like you're building specific uh, stuff. You are working. You you are you are trying to. Yeah, this is actually what you already said. So you're doing research around the idea how to pro, how to how to implement traceability into into research, and you do whatever is required. To see what happens, right? So you're not building a specific library or specific Java application. You're just building whatever is needed uh, to to try things out, right? So you are experimenting right now with different things. Yeah, yeah. So um, probably at one point you would have um, different different client language applications in different different languages. Yeah, for for this integration, like one Java, one whatever. But uh, actually, for, for Java, you probably wouldn't need to build something specific yourself because um, if you want to connect Java with Ethereum, there's already a library out there. It's called Web3J. So Web3 is kind of the uh, semi-official name for the protocol of talking to Ethereum. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, you can say it's like a Web3 protocol, and it's basically JSON RPC. Okay. So HTTP uh, with, with JSON, kind of. And you um, in Ethereum, you can compile the smart contract or you can compile smart contracts and deploy them to Ethereum. And once you do this, it kind of feels like having like a serverless uh, function running on Ethereum. Okay, and so then, let's let's start from the beginning. So what uh, yeah. Ethereum is a blockchain. So uh, it's written yeah. in C, I guess, or uh, maybe Go or Rust. Uh, so um, Ethereum uh, is an let's say like this so ethereum is a technology but it's mm -hmm. also a network and it's also a currency mm -hmm. so we have to a little bit uh, distinguish between those um the ethereum technology mm -hmm. uh, is the ethereum virtual machine a little bit similar to the java virtual machine mm -hmm. plus the network peer-to-peer -peer protocol how those ethereum virtual machines uh, connect with each other to create a network mm -hmm. and you can run your own ethereum networks mm -hmm. then there is the ethereum main network which and is, is the one is, everyone knows and the ethereum jvm is written in c or e go evm evm so 
EVM, Ethereum Virtual Machine. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. Ethereum the EVM, Ethereum, right? Uh-huh. The Ethereum EVM, uh, you can get implementations in all kind of languages oh. and you can connect them together in the mm-hmm. network. So as long as they follow the Ethereum yellow paper, which is uh, like the specification of the mm-hmm. EVM, mm-hmm. they are interoperable. And actually the interoperability is quite good. Is there a so JV, JVM for EVM? There are Java implementations, oh, yes, okay. mul- mm-hmm. multiple ones. Okay. And actually, uh, the one in the early days of Ethereum, I'm not sure if it was the first reference implementation of the EVM, but it was one of the first. It was called Ethereum J, mm-hmm. and it was in Java and later became Apache Harmony. Uh, but those are dead by now, by the way, but uh, they were one of the first. Okay. Then then the current, um, the current reference one is called GAS, Mm-hmm. And guess is in Go, mm-hmm. and then there is another very famous one. It's called. Uh, it was called Parity. It's now co- now called Open Ethereum. This is mm-hmm. written in Rust. Mm-hmm. Then there is a third very big one. It's called Hyperledger Bezu, and this one is written in Java, mm-hmm. uh, and it is also compatible with the others. And it doesn't have that much community backing, but it has a lot of uh, enterprise backing, and it is also one of the ones that's very famous right now for building your own network. So, for example, the European Union has a, a blockchain project is called EPSI, a European Service Blockchain Infrastructure, and they uh, run it in a prototype state on Hyperledger Bezu, so on Java, essentially. Mm-hmm. And uh, why? I, okay, but it actually doesn't matter with which implementation I'm using, right? I can mix and match no. Go Rust. It's just my... This is like... To, uh, you know, uh, to uh, to choose which web server you are using, right? It also doesn't matter. It's just uh, from operational perspective. But if I would extend the the EVM with my own contracts, the contracts are also specified, so it doesn't matter where I push the code, or the uh, Java EVM will only expect um, or yeah, it would only accept Java code and the Rust the Rust code, or how this works? They they all expect Ethereum bytecode. Ah, okay. So we, so, okay. So the, regardless which EVM we are using, uh, this is just the implementation. So we would implement in Java the EVM which ex- expects uh, or accepts uh, e- Ethereum bytecode. So that's completely compatible. And okay, then the own, then the performance might be a thing. And of course, uh, from the operational perspective with Java, I will probably can, can do some JMX and, and monitoring and profiling, which is harder in Go and Rust. Okay, so I got it. Mm-hmm. This this is the uh, selling point of Hyperledger Bezu, also by the company behind it, that they want to bring this uh, JVM or Java-based client into the enterprise world because the enterprise is more comfortable with uh, operating um, Java-based applications, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. is sensible approach, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And what you are using in your in your containers? So uh, we are using um, uh, Open Parity, so the Rust one, because mm-hmm. the um, so there are two things that need to be compatible between containers. The one is the EVM, but they are compatible between each other. The other is the consensus protocol. And um, the Ethereum mainnet uh, is using a proof-of-work consensus mm-hmm. uh, So, and, and all supports support those, basically. But if you run your own network, um, and there is a class, it's called public permission networks, in which you don't need proof of work because you select the uh, participants that are allowed to run nodes. And those uh, proofs, proof of authority, uh, consensus algorithms, they use. Uh, so different clients um, support different consensus algorithms for those kind of consensus ones. And since the network we joined um, used uh, um, Parity or Open Ethereum, which uses um, Aura consensus, Mm-hmm. authority round uh, if you want to join this network or, or participate in this network you need a client that supports this and there is no other client that supports this at the moment okay so hyperledger bezu uh, is uh, is um, uh, supporting different consensus algorithms click mm-hmm. and uh, istanbul Butsin, istanbul Byzantine practical fault tolerance uh, but not yet aura they say they want to do it but uh, it's not there yet once they would support it we could in theory just say okay our university now uh, connects to the network with this bezu a java based one and we're still 100 compatible but uh, yeah right now it's not possible so this would be a, a, a student assignment you know to implement the... yeah, definitely yeah <laughs> um okay but uh let's say i pick one of the evm so um, i'm most interested of course in the java one so and I would start my own network, and then the the nodes will find each other, 
and then what happens? Nothing. So they are just running. They try to mm -hmm. replicate something. There is nothing to replicate. So what what would be a Ethereum Hello World? Yeah. So it, once you once you spin up the network, let's say you just have already three nodes, yeah. and they use something like a proof of authority, like Istanbul, Istanbul, Byzantium, Fortran, then they would just write empty blocks. So they would the uh, consensus would already run, and they would run empty blocks. And blocks so are the Merkle do, tree, more or less, right? Yeah. So a block is a set of transaction. Each transaction. Uh, can have the Merkle tree, or I'm actually not sure how Ethereum does it internally. Bitcoin would do it like this, but yeah, a block is a set of Merkle roots, probably. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's but like they are all empty. Uh, more or less like Git repository, I would almost say, right? It's like a list of tr commits which are chained together with hashes or something like this. Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. You can say like this. So yeah. and they are. So I have, uh, let's say, for us Java developers, uh, three machines with three empty Git repositories, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. And they and they do constantly do empty commits basically. Yeah. And they they uh, rotate which is other doing empty commits. So now you want to do something useful. And in the in the world of um, Ethereum, like the Hello World thing, is writing a smart contract that uh, implements its own token, fungible token in this case, so a coin basically, a simple coin example. That's what you always use. Um, so you would now, but the coin. Uh, I mean, this is this is I uh, know, but this is like for me, this is harder to understand the coin because it's uh, completely virtual. There is something and nothing, right? Um, so, it it could be a text message, better, right? Um, so let's say uh, a value storage. Let's let's use this. Yeah. Okay. So a value storage. So okay. You have a contract that can contain. Uh, yeah, let's do the hello world and it contains the name, okay? Okay. And then you will ask the smart contract and it will then say, hello, Adam. Yeah. But someone could then update the value in the smart contract and it will say, hello, Kevin. Perfect. Yeah. So um, uh, this smart contract, you would uh, write in a language, uh, probably Solidity. Mm -hmm. So um, Solidity is one of the programming languages you can then compile into uh, Ethereum bytecode. Mm -hmm. And uh, Solidity looks a little bit like um, like a mixture of JavaScript and some C elements in there. So it's a very uh, not not sophisticatedly designed language, I would say. It just you know, kind of emerged from the beginning. You know why they did it? Why they invented their own language? Um I don't know. I think so. They they started from the uh, from the from the bytecode or from the yellow paper, of course, and they started from the assembly instruction, kind of. And okay. then they, I think, wanted to have something that I don't know looked a little bit like JavaScript, and that okay. was just limited to the subset of functions they had in their okay. uh, EVM. So it was pragmatic decision, more or less, what they did. Okay. Yeah, but actually, not one hundred percent sure why why they did like this because there are a lot of um, design decisions in this uh, language that are uh, not something you would consider real design <laughs> decisions. <laughs> it's just like accidental, it seems so, yeah. Which is a big problem in, in Ethereum uh, right now that, uh, but that's a different topic, yeah. So that the okay. language is not that well designed. But perfect. But What's the key value? This is what I, I think is more useful for me because it's, now I'm thinking about a hash map, key value. And the value can change, okay? That's not interesting. There's hello yeah. world, and Adam so said. In, mm -hmm. But in this in this case, so you could have. So I, I can make it a little bit more clearer. Actually, a smart contract mm -hmm. in Ethereum in Solidity written is like a Java class. Mm -hmm. So you write the smart contract code. It looks basically like a Java class. It's mm -hmm. contract instead of class. The rest is the same. So you have fields, you have methods, you have a constructor. Mm -hmm. In this case, for this value thing, we will just have a single field with a string, mm -hmm. and that will be the name. Mm -hmm. And then there will be a method that will say, uh, that will be like, say hello, and mm -hmm. that will just return hello and the value of this field. Mm -hmm. This will be our smart contract. Mm -hmm. So once we uh, compile this smart contract and then deploy it onto the running network, mm -hmm. this is really the same as instantiating an object in Java. Mm -hmm. So now we have an instantiated instance of this smart contract which is then a smart contract instance that has an address in the Ethereum network, just mm -hmm. like in Java object has an address in memory. Mm -hmm. And uh, now from this one instance, we can then like change the state of this field and then it will answer something different. But we can instantiate many versions of this smart contracts that will all have, have their own state. Their own state. Mm -hmm. And yeah. but they, their own identity as well. So they have their own state, exactly. but their own address, right? Yes, exactly. They have their own address. Yeah. And how I can call the method via the RPC or something like this, right? 
Exactly. So if you would, uh, so it's this um, HTTP API basically, or it's also uh, WebRTC possible, uh, uh, no, WebSocket. Uh, and um, in a Java terms, uh, you would use, for example, Web3J, which is just like the most mature language. You could also already use it to deploy the smart contract, by the way. Mm -hmm. um, and um, then, so this library, like for Java developers, it's so cool. So it will um, deploy the contract for you but it will also create a Java proxy class for you. Ah, mm -hmm. This Java proxy class just looks exactly like the smart contract. Mm -hmm. So you you can just like call all the methods from the smart contract like you would uh, call a Java object. Mm -hmm. And then underneath, it's uh, doing calls uh, over the wire. Mm -hmm. So you you are doing uh, um, like asynchronous calls normally because it takes some time to get the answer. So it's just like an... But they support both, like a synchronous or an asynchronous uh, programming API. But um, for a Java developer, you, you don't see that you are really um, interacting with a blockchain. It feels like um, interacting with a proxy object that's just interacting with any kind of web server. So it's like RMI or Corma almost, right? So Yeah. So if I call that and the state of the smart contract is mutated, um, behind the scene, does it already... Uh, create the Merkle tree, so somehow, you know, uh, track the state changes, or it is just uh, a stateless serverless class right now, if I just do this? So, so the Java class is uh, stateless, mm -hmm. but the um, uh, smart contract in the network has all the state. So this is then part of the programming model. If you model, if you want to, ch so if you want to change the state in the smart contract, mm -hmm. um, calling this function works by means of a um, Ethereum transaction. Ah, okay. Yeah, so, so therefore I've, this will lead to a change. Yeah. So all uh, Ethereum uh, functions are transactional. And if I call them, uh, okay, on the state in the in the Ethereum language, I guess it's something like a field or something and it's persistent by default. So if I change the state, a new transaction is, or a new state transition is created. And after the function call, it is committed, basically, right? It's more or less like Hibernate or JPA. So I have the, yeah. fi the fields, right, which are, are the state. You can modify the state, but in one point of time, after the function is completed successfully, the state is frozen. And uh, in Hibernate, the state is frozen in place. And I assume in Ethereum, a new version would be created and changed to the last version, right? So I get something like inverse built in. I don't know what you know. Inverse in Hibernate is like, you know, uh, this is like versioning. So I see all these state changes over time. Exactly. So that's that's true. So uh, every um, function in uh, Ethereum that can mutate state mm -hmm. can only be executed by means of a transaction. Mm -hmm. um, but there are also functions that are basically views. And those you can call without huh. doing a transaction because you just view the state and they mm -hmm. are for free. Mm -hmm. uh, the other ones, the ones that change the state, they always have to be paid by means of transaction costs. So we, we didn't talk about this topic, but uh, that's where this economic stuff comes into place. Yeah, in this Europe. is the but, politics, you know. Yeah, to a certain degree. <laughs> but, the, but the analogy is, is uh, very correct, like how you, how you explained it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And the next one interests me, I have three notes. Is the state automatically replicated somehow? Because you mentioned consensus. So consensus, I would say... Uh, the, 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 my analogy is always you know, to enterprise Java. So <laughs> if I, in Ethereum world, in enterprise Java, let's say I have InfiniSpan, so I could actually tell the cache whether InfiniSpan should wait until the test, the, the state replicates to all nodes or whether it happens asynchronously. Well, so what's the deal with uh, Ethereum? Uh, when the transaction is committed, is the state automatically available on all nodes? Yeah, so um, this depends on the uh, consensus protocol used. Let's use uh, as an example the Aura proof of authority because it's a very simple one. It's easy to understand. Mm -hmm. So in this case, what would happen? We would send out the transaction into the network to mm -hmm. one of the nodes. It doesn't really matter. This node gets it. Gets it. This node's node basically mines the transaction into a block. Yeah, mm -hmm. and mining in this case proof of authority doesn't cost energy like proof of work. Mm -hmm. It just kind of executes transaction, puts it into a block, and then um, it um, broadcasts this new version of the chain into the network. Mm -hmm. So in proof of authority, uh, authority round, it works like a round robin. So each of the nodes mm -hmm. that's um, part of the network uh, gets a, a time slice at which it's allowed to propose new blocks uh, into the chain. Mm -hmm. 
it does this, then the next one can add a block, then again and again. And then by definition of the consensus, it says um, that um, once half, at least half of the network have signed a block, oh. mm -hmm. it becomes uh, a permanent, uh, or yes, it becomes basically permanent. Signing means implicitly adding a block after it. So if you add a block after the one before, you say, okay, the block before was valid. I sign it by appending a block to the chain. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, this this way the consensus works. So once half of the network has signed a block, it is uh, permanent and um, there is a, a time step in this consensus algorithm. So every X second, it will do a new block. So it okay. takes some time until it finalizes in the network. And um, you need these kind of things because uh, blockchain being like a network thing and so on, you can all always have kind of network uh, inconsistencies in their glitches, whatever. Mm -hmm. So you have an effect uh, that's called forking. So there might be because of a network failure or whatever, might be happening that two groups of the network uh, starting to write their own history. Your split brain, be right? Problem. Yeah, exactly. And the way the um, aura consensus works is that the longest chain will always win mm -hmm. and that you always need kind of this majority thing. And then it can would potentially override actually the history of the other uh, part of the network after the split um, is over. But therefore, you always have to wait until half of the nodes um, signed transaction to be sure that it will really become uh, part of the um, mainline, so to say. It's interesting because in NoSQL databases, they call the ma majority quorum. So there is a quorum setting. So you can mm -hmm. say, you know, if the majority mm -hmm. receives the state, the transaction is committed. So it's funny that Ethereum just uses different terms for very similar concepts, right? So it's also used sometimes quorum and so on in the okay. world. Um, and um, so this is a whole topic of Byzantine fault tolerance, basically, yeah, exactly. so of mm -hmm. distributed systems and so on. Um, uh, but this is how it works in a proof of authority Ethereum network. The so, mainnet with this proof of work base is different. So the mining and signing. So mining means mm -hmm. merging, right? So and signing means uh, the entire thing. The hash code is ca calculated and appended and uh, is immutable again. So no, actually, uh, how people tend to use it. So mining is if you use a proof of work they call it in general mining if you're using a proof of authority they just call it sign ah this is so the same thing okay yeah but yeah, yeah. But, the but, difference in proof of work is uh, that you have to find this partial hash collision which is kind of statistically expensive and that uh, changes the whole consensus mechanism so and, and mining and signing is basically git merge or git commit it, it, commit almost right because uh git add and commit so so you receive yeah, something yeah. from from outside add you adding mm -hmm. into the to the repository and then committing is designing or, or mm -hmm. even tagging even better uh, tagging even better because you can say this is like a how it's called not cryptographic uh add uh git tag so you have the the message on okay so mm -hmm. um okay now i got you so you can you can tweak the algorithm so what you get with ethereum is is actually a NoSQL database with potential, with persistence. It doesn't have to be, you get the, how to call it, the consensus and persistency from NoSQL engine without, with, with less focus on persistence, I would say, right? Because the persistence is just used for metadata and is not meant to store terabytes in, of data in Ethereum, right? Definitely. You can't do big storage on chain. That uh, makes no sense for many, many reasons. It becomes too expensive. Yeah. Uh, but it's also more than just storage because these smart contracts, uh, so you can have logic in the smart contracts. Yes, this is, this is like NoSQL language. with uh, NoSQL without, how to call it? Then Ethereum and blockchain would be like metadata, um, NoSQL for metadata with stored procedures. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Stored procedures uh, that fits. Yeah. So it's um, like a, a, so. What they call it, like the Gavin Wood is the in inventor of the technical side. He calls it like a ubiquitous uh, single state machine. Um, that is, um, yeah, it's pseudo Turing complete basically. So it's also like it's like a big distributed computer that is super slow, and mm -hmm. everyone can access from everywhere via mm -hmm. HTTP. It's very similar to this, what we already know, 
right? If you if you think about this, so uh, um, and you mentioned three because uh, three notes or five notes, I guess, is uh, because to avoid the split brain problem. So you always need majority. So if you start with two or four, there's really hard. Okay, and yeah. and uh, which IDE you are using to to writing the uh, the uh, what, what language you used for the smart contract? So Solidity is Solidity, the for instance, one, basically. Yeah, mm -hmm. and uh, which contracts can you or which Program, uh, which IDE can you use? Visual Studio Code or VI or what? <laughs> yeah, you can use what you want, but Visual Studio Code has some really nice extensions actually, okay. so it works works very well. And there are some uh, funny extensions also from Microsoft uh, for for this that have some cool debugger stuff built in and so on, but that's not okay. really working well all the time. But still, um, there is also an IntelliJ extension. Um, but I really tend to use the uh, Visual Studio one, and there is a, a very Visual Studio Code one, and there is a very cool web-based one. It's called Remix, and it's kind of like this semi-official one that just runs in the browser, and it's really uh, good for, for demos and trying out stuff. cool thing for this browser-based one is that it uses a JavaScript implementation of the EVM mm -hmm. for oh, a kind uh -huh. of local testing. Yeah, That's interesting. Okay, so you could yeah, run it in the browser. Yeah, it's then super convenient. So because you can also do like uh, basically TDDing uh, mm -hmm. your smart contracts, and you can do it uh, uh, TDDing basically in, in two flavors. One is by testing these smart contracts with Solidity itself, which is not uh, that easy most of the case because uh, Solidity is a language that is so limited in many ways, and you are running in kind of the same transactions. So if you want to see Day changes from the outside, it's not useful to do like this, but you can also do kind of like a more integration testing like Singy, where you would either use um, like a JavaScript to call uh, into the smart contract and see or interact with it and see the changes it happens. Or there is even a really, really cool project also from the Web3J guys, as it's called Web3J Unit, uh, that uh, uses uh, test containers under the hood actually to um, spin up a, a local Ethereum node, deploy your smart contract in there, and then you can integration test it with Web3J. So that's super cool, I think. Uh, is it viable to use one node for developing or you always need a network? No, no, it's uh, super okay to use a single node, especially okay. if you're just um, testing the logic of the smart contract of the smart contract code. Yeah. So actually for your research work, what you did with the MATLAB, what you could do, you you, you have probably your own data structure. This is the, uh, you say, you know, the author of the work. What kind of work is it? Uh, the description where you can, which mm -hmm. is uh, identifiable across the community, like the unique key. Then from MATLAB Simulink, you submitted the thing to Ethereum. Then uh, the state was change of the smart contract. So this is like the daily works, so like a journal. So uh, the last commit is the last work, but you can trace how the work happened. And this would be like one path. And they could be, of course, connected because the researchers know other researchers, I guess. They can uh, relate to each other. And what you could do, of course, you could use, let's say, GitHub, or sorry, GitHub, Git, as a backbone for the real work and you can and you can point from from the blockchain from the metadata to the hash of the commits in in git so that there will be the link mm -hmm. you know and with the smart contract you could even validate that because i, I guess uh the uh, solidity you could uh, call git and see whether the hash really exists right this you could not oh. so with <laughs> with smart contract you can't go outside of the evm basically then it has to happen before mm -hmm. yeah 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 so uh, the um so how do you get data, outside data, into the Ethereum context? It's called this uh, process called Oracle. Yeah, so Oracle are things from outside the world mm -hmm. that feed data into Ethereum. Mm -hmm. So Ethereum uh, smart contracts can decide on how to act on this data. Um, uh, yeah, because the stuff inside the uh, that happens in a transaction in Ethereum always needs to be a, kind of a, a, a close context that has to be deterministic. Yeah. Because also you always can replay transactions from the past, mm -hmm. uh, which is actually super cool in a debugger. So you can mm -hmm. always take a historic transaction time, time and run in a debugger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can do this, and it's uh, so in Visual Studio Code or with a, a command line debugger, it's uh, super nice mm -hmm. from a developer perspective. But therefore, you already see uh, it would not make sense to call services uh, outside um, that have data outside what is on the ledger. Mm -hmm. Reminds me um, to of functional programming pure functions, right? So the side effects are 
not yeah. wished because uh, if you re-execute that, you, you need a result if you call out to, to the Git. Okay, so you will have to... Yeah, so the the, the mm -hmm. only, only way to get data in from the outside world is by those oracles feeding data into it by means of transactions. Okay, so we have still the problem because what can happen is that you trace everything and the researcher deleted the paper. Yes. But then you see the metadata is not consistent with the data, right? It's like an NFT talk. This is the same problem with NFT tokens, of course. The URI points to nowhere, right? There, there is something else that kind of tries to solve this, which is uh, closely connected to the blockchain world, but not blockchain itself. And uh, this is from the distributed storage and peer-to-peer -peer storage world. Uh, and one of the most famous protocols is IPFS. Interplanetary, interplanetary Fizest. It was the coolest exactly. name ever. <laughs> yeah, it's super cool. And yeah. it's really interplanetary because there is an IPFS node on the ISS. So. Ah, I didn't knew that. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And, uh, and the, those URIs, uh, they are cool because um, uh, compared to HTTP uh, URL, which points at a at location, an IPFS URI, points uh, at, at, a at data, actually, because uh, the cryptographic hash is part of the URI. So if you would change oh. the data, it would create a new, a new URI. So okay. you have the uh, file integrity check basically built into the URI. Mm -hmm. So very useful. And then also the fact that it's kind of distributed and replicating and so on in this peer-to-peer -peer fashion makes it a very good uh, thing to connect with blockchain. Uh, but of course, also in IPFS, you don't have guarantees that the files will stay there. Because if no one accesses the files or whatever, there is no obligation for nodes in the network to keep those files around. Okay. But uh, you have still the problem. Oh, no, you don't have the problem. You can uh, you can store the URI, which is immutable, in mm -hmm. the blockchain. Exactly. And, and then, uh, yeah, in the blockchain. And, uh, of course, in IPFS has to be reliable. So this is the only thing. So, uh, okay, this, yes. is, this is doable. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. you can, and, you can and, single like a public infrastructure, yeah, like universities yeah. doing it together also. Yeah. And the check can happen outside, right? So if I check out my blockchain and I, I can always verify outside whether the URI is still valid. So this is not a problem mm -hmm. at all. Yeah, mix of both is re really usable. Uh, what interests me, how big, what is a reasonable size of a blockchain or sorry, Ethereum transaction? So I mean, um, Twitter, how, how much text can we store there? More than one meg? Or what is, you know, what you would say, what is a reasonable size of, of a transaction? So a uh, megabyte would be already gigantic in terms of Ethereum. So okay. we, are, we are more in, in the area of bytes. Okay. Really, oh. really like this, yeah. So uh, like uh, having a couple of, uh, of, of hashes in there, mm -hmm. URIs, mm -hmm. uh, maybe, maybe a title or something like a single string, that, that's all. You wouldn't, you wouldn't store more. Okay, then in your research, you're starting with IPFS right away, right? Because you, I mean, you cannot. So what it means is the best practice in Ethereum is actually even even worse. So you would have a pointer to IPFS, and the IPFS stores metadata and the data, right? Uh, yes. So probably what you would do, yeah. uh, the the URI points at the metadata on IPFS, mm -hmm. and then in the metadata you have an another another pointer, maybe also uh, IPFS to the actual data. Yes. So actually, so doing NFT right would be trivial comparing to your world, right? Because the NFTs are not even related to each other. You would need just, you know, a couple of hashes and points to IPFS. And this is basically it, right? Uh, this is only a trivial on a technical level, mm -hmm. on the actual content licensing level and what it means to own an uh, NFT in this case it's far, far less than trivial. And it's actually, I think, an unsolved question about how uh, licenses works in those world. Yeah, this is what I also think. But uh, in, in digital world, I mean, the problem is everything is identical. So <laughs> you have to believe that this belongs to you because I can copy your stuff and I have your stuff and you are the... the... This is more like supporting someone or, or as a hobby is a nice thing, right? So it's uh, what they call... So I, I think what you can call those NFTs they are they are bragging rights yeah so you can you uh, yeah uh, buy the right to say you own it yeah um, that's more or less it and you're also trusting um in so if an artist does a drop so dropping means uh, offering a set of nfts for one of his digital mm -hmm. arts maybe mm -hmm. uh, and he says okay i will only offer this digital art once here mm -hmm. 
then you are buying this and you kind of trust that he will only offer it once, but he can offer, offer it again. Then yeah. he can just publish more NFTs. Then you can still say, okay, but as you can see in the history, I got the first one and back then it was said it will, will be the only one. So it still gives you a little bit of a historic leverage, so to say, but there is no way to uh, avoid uh, the artist dropping more. Then it yeah, becomes but a second edition, basically. Let's say a famous band like Iron Cobra, for instance, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, uh, uh, would drop a song. So if you drop a song today, and then drop a song uh, in in a in a year. We could even argue you are mm -hmm. in different mood. There is different situation, and this is diff different artistic value to it. I mean, and and then cool. it's okay. I mean, this is what what should happen. Otherwise, it mm -hmm. doesn't matter, right? So the NFT just mm -hmm. means today I send mm -hmm. something to you, and if tomorrow I send something to someone else, the value of tomorrow is different than today. Otherwise, it doesn't, yeah, right? Because otherwise it doesn't work at all. Um, Completely correct, yeah. So actually, we explained NFTs, right, with your research work. So NFTs is yeah. a more trivial variant of your MATLAB uh, integration. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> no, I, I mean, this is pretty usable. And um, what uh, what happened to me in several projects, they asked me you know, to, to help them with, uh, with uh, blockchain or blockchain. They had similar problems, traceability, actually. That, that's the problem. And uh, what we usually did in 80% of all cases, we use Git because it's uh, mm -hmm. good enough for and, and faster and, 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 and you have have the proof mm -hmm. and um in in lesser traceable way you could even use kafka because also immutable yeah. so you, you, you can have a fun, if, fun fact one one of the uh, very uh, more or less famous um uh, blockchain for enterprise uh, applications or, or uh, software packages libraries infrastructure whatever mm -hmm. hyperledger fabric huh? um, it used to be built on kafka i'm actually not sure if they replaced some parts now but back then it was okay. just like a kafka distribution mm -hmm. that would uh, kind of have smart contracts implemented as a way that would uh, spin up docker containers running the code yeah mm -hmm. so that was their blockchain for the enterprise was basically a, a kafka uh, attached with a, a docker scheduler so to say mm -hmm. yeah what, what what i see right now is that we have many technologies and they are very very similar from the technological perspective but mm -hmm. comes with complete different terms, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so if we see yes. the DynamoDB research papers from Amazon, there is consensus. Everything is very, very similar. So Paxos algorithm, if you see, they also have consensus and all actually Kafka users or Zookeeper and the others, uh, or Zookeeper is the, uh, also a tree-like structure. And uh, it is less on, on cryptography and more on consensus, but uh, it's, it's like how to build a distributed singleton is, would be a Zookeeper. And... Um, and and now blockchain comes with uh, uh, virtual machine and smart contracts. Funny fact, I was somewhere in conference and I had already chat about blockchain and I asked someone what is a smart contract and they couldn't explain me this. So I'm, I say okay, what is it? And they they, they talk half an hour. It's okay, I have no idea. But now I really got it. <laughs> what it is is basically a Java class with a specific <laughs> functionality. There are like view methods. They have no effect, and there are transactional methods which change the state. And uh, designing means a new copy is created. It points to the last copy, becomes, uh, and then the entire thing is signed. And I guess something similar to Git happens that uh, the hash of the last commit is merged with the hash of the previous commit, and and then it the, becomes the hash of the entire thing, right? Yeah, yeah. So that's how the uh, chaining of the blocks works. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, is it still a thing, Ethereum, or is it getting more popular, mm. or, 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 yeah. or less? Yeah, okay. Getting because... more popular, the NFTs made it more popular, and oh, okay. Ethereum 2 is also coming, which is using proof of stake instead of proof of uh, work, so people hope it will mitigate those uh, gas cost problems. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What I remember, I guess 2017 or 16, there was a huge drama with Ethereum. Something went south. Mm -hmm. And what they did, they uh, more or less forked. This mm -hmm. is uh, the the blockchain. So uh, the, the community decided to move to help the founders, I think, and they created the uh, how to call it the new master chain, and uh, and the and the bogus chain dried out. So uh, what it, happened it, exactly? It, no, it's still it's still active. It's still active. Ethereum Classic. It's called Ethereum Classic. So we have two networks now: Ethereum Mainnet and Ethereum Classic. And Ethereum Classic is the old one. That was so. Yeah, there. What there exactly happened happens, big, and when, when was it? Do you remember that? Uh, so no, I'm not that familiar with the details. I know roughly there was. Yeah. I think there was actually a, a, some kind of a bug in the EVM or something mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. led to a certain group losing a lot of money, basically a lot of, losing a lot of ether, but translate to money, translates to dollar. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so losing a lot of money. 
And then what the uh, community said, the Ethereum community, they said, okay, we will uh, update the protocol, so we will fix this bug, and we will also reset the history of the ledger. So it's just like resetting ah, the head of Git to okay. keep with the Git uh, stuff. Okay. Yeah. So they reset the pointer of the head. But a set of uh, uh, node operators said, no, we don't want to reset. We want to go on. And mm -hmm. therefore, then it really branched. Yeah. So we call it forking in mm -hmm. uh, in blockchain world. So it forked. But in Git terms, it would be branching, not mm -hmm. forking. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, now both are still, now both are running and they are incompatible now mm -hmm. because they run different protocols. Mm -hmm. Okay. And okay. the mainnet is very big, but Classic is still there. And, wha and what happens on Classic? I mean, wh who uses Classic, classic and wh why to use Classic? You know that? I don't know. So <laughs> okay. They, some people use it because it's cheaper. So less people use Classic. Okay. Therefore, we have less network contention. Therefore, gas costs are cheaper. And uh, Ethereum Classic, uh, Ether is also um, cheaper. Um, okay. Yeah. So uh, now the last thing we didn't talk about that at all. This was the you know the whole drama of energy consumption and you. Mm -hmm. uh, so signing is reasonable. It is, mm -hmm. I guess, as cheap as it can be. So I, I would choose yep. probably a cheap algorithm just to sign the thing. But mm -hmm. uh, in uh, you already mentioned proof of work, mm -hmm. and if you would like to earn money with Ethereum or or uh, other currencies, so there's different because to signing you need computer power, right? To mining, you mean? Uh, to mining, yeah. Which is means uh, mining is the uh, not environmental friendly signing, right? Exactly. So uh, mining is is your mainnet uses proof of work, a, a mm -hmm. mining consensus, and mining. What is happening in the mining? And I have uh, also a nice talk about this somewhere in the internet where I just show in a Java code how it actually looks, what happens underneath. Mm -hmm. Mining means finding a partial hash collision. Mm -hmm. The partial hash collision, so you have all those kind of different uh, data that feed into the hash that gets calculated for the block. Mm -hmm. And one of the fields is is the so-called nonce, which is just a counter. Mm -hmm. And you increase the nonce by always by one, you increment it until you find a combination of data that leads to a hash that starts with, for example, five leading zeros. This mm -hmm. is the difficulty, the current mining difficulty. This is how many leading zeros you find. And the amount of leading zeros in your hash is, of course, the partial hash collision you're looking for. Mm -hmm. And um, since this is a, a completely random process, basically, finding this partial hash collision, uh, you are constantly calculating those hashes. And this is what's, what burns energy. Yeah. And... Um, This comes, of course, from the uh, Bitcoin paper, the original Bitcoin paper that made this famous, this proof-of-work consensus. So we call it also uh, uh, Nakamoto consensus by the name of the pseudonymous author, Satoshi Nakamoto. And this is a way of doing consensus in a network of uh, uh, participants that don't trust each other and that is supposed to statistically avoid so-called double-spending attacks by making it more economically viable to use the hash power on mining instead of attacking the network. Mm -hmm. So this is yeah. genius and stupid at the same time. Stupid because you are burning uh, energy for nothing, really nothing. So you try to find, you know, uh, a, how to call it, an answer to a, to a stupid question, uh, basically. And genius because, uh, yeah, the trust problem is solved, right? So uh, yeah. You can do whatever you like. You can buy the you know the most expensive machines, and 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 then and then you are basically with your machines you are signing the transactions, and uh, with mining <laughs> or mining or oh, mining transactions. No, mm -hmm. I would call it signing transaction because the miner signs transaction with the work, right? So what what they do as a, as a byproduct of of that is they they are actually signing transactions, and uh, and and mining is the work they have to do to. To mine the, the number, to find the number. The, oh, oh. Yes. In order to sign the transactions, they need the number, and the number yes. is hard to find. So, and this this is to, to mine the number, they can sign the transaction. And yes. this is why it's However, slow. In the proof mm -hmm. of authority one, they just sign with a certificate, basically, yeah. or with a public, yeah. uh, with a public which is yeah. more interesting, I would say, in than the other. I mean, the other you can you can become rich, and uh, <laughs> with the other you get a uh, interesting work, right? So, um. And uh, the problem is, of course, that uh, if it gets getting harder and harder, you get bigger and bigger machines. And this is why why it makes it so slow, because what can happen is so there is a huge backlog of transactions and they cannot be signed because the numbers are not mined and uh, not found. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So uh, you are. Um, so the more hash power you get in the whole network, the mm -hmm. higher also the difficulty uh, increases because the difficulty is an auto adapting mechanism mm -hmm. that is supposed 
to lead to a certain throughput of transactions in the in the network. That's mm-hmm. kind of the idea to get a constant throughput, and then the difficulty increases if you get more power and more participants. And um, yes, basically the problem is that um, those cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin, like Ether, they became uh, speculative financial assets in themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I, I would say in a certain way, like uh, the classic financial markets maybe distorted the more idealistic model those blockchain folks had back then about how the system will develop mm-hmm. because it was never intended. So those uh, the fees you get, you earn from mining, they were never intended uh, to be a means of itself. They were just intended to make being a productive member of the network more viable than being an uh, adversar- adversarial member, like an attacker. So it was more economically viable to mine instead of attack, but it was never meant to mine for just mining, kind of. Yeah. So similar to internet, right? So it was meant, you know, for research and then become c- commercial. But yeah, okay. So the mainnet in Ethereum, this is mainly cryptocurrency. So nothing else useful happens. It's just for for coins, right? N- no, this I would not say. So. Okay. Um, it's uh, Ethereum is kind of this multi-layered architecture. So, um, but, the core, net, but the mainnet, but the mainnet, okay, even mainnet, you can have all kind of uh, smart contracts deployed on the mainnet. And, you oh, okay. have, and once you once you have this, you have applications running on decentralized applications. We call them. And okay, uh, so then, they then are different degrees of useful, I would say. It's not like if you are if you are on the mainnet, you are already forced to use the uh, mining algorithms. You're, you're forced to use a, a mining algorithm, but you can deploy deploy your own smart contracts, which are then like, as we said before, Java objects running there or whatever, and they can represent anything what you want. But you will have to wait until a miner signs your stuff. So this is less, I would say, less reliable than your network because you can sign immediately, right? It is slower and it's more expensive. Uh, talking about reliability is a completely different story because uh, oh, reliab- public Ethereum is super reliable. For many years, it's running. Uh, I, I meant predictable. So if you oh, yeah. are yeah, yeah. predictable, not reliable, predictable, because uh, you can sign immediately and uh, I will have to wait until signing happens. I have no... Uh, that is true. But uh, once I put a smart contract on the public mainnet and people are interacting with it, applications are interacting with it, there is basically high confidence and high trust in this global infrastructure that it will keep on existing. While when I'm running my own network that consists of, I don't know, three universities running it, like uh, the students will leave the university, the network stops running, basically. So once you run the permission network, it solves like a cheap solution for this uh, energy problem, but it's not a cheap solution. Technically, it's cheap to replace proof of work with uh, proof of authority, but on a governance operational level it's very 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 complex and um i we we see a lot of actually research and work on building those governance structures of different entities different companies whatever running those networks together in a way that they become trustable and reliable have a good professional governance and um, are also um uh, legally uh, um working in a way that, that works with current legal frameworks with regards to GDPR and so on. It's like actually a terrible problem, GDPR, for, for those um, consortium-run networks. Yeah. yeah, so what I understand right now is what you did, you have your local Git and the mainnet is like GitHub, right? So GitHub is more reliable and, uh, and, and Git, you can have your own Git server, but it can disappear. No one knows what happens. Yeah. And yeah, this mm-hmm. is okay. So, um, okay, so it means like the, it would be viable decision to run application logic on the main net it would be more expensive but it's more reliable yes. because by more nodes and of course there's more trust because you mm-hmm. are signed by multiple miners which are distributed don't know each other and so forth so mm-hmm. you're also buying with the energy more trust mm-hmm. yes yeah yes. So not only from coin perspective is also interesting from from the business perspective mm-hmm. yeah perfect so uh we cover a lot of stuff today uh yes. and um i'm really curious uh, next time what you what you already achieved with what i would expect the next time that you know you are running completely on java with the java evm right so one of the students created the algorithm and of course test containers are used more heavily in the ethereum yes. research yeah yeah let's uh, yeah let's pin me on this uh, and i will try my best to make this happen <laughs> by means of my students <laughs> and of course we need at least one nft for iron cobra 
yeah, we have we have a, a album planned. So after the COVID situation, we will go to the studio, record a new album, and I kind of convinced the others that we will do like fun, some some funny NFT thing with it. Yeah, yeah, this yeah, this this would be uh, this would be nice. This would be a, this would be a genius actually. You know, by uh, head of research plays in <laughs> in 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 a heavy metal band and and publish its own uh, his own NFT. This would be great. So yeah, perfect. Yeah, this has to uh, where people can find you? So Uri to your research department and your, your Twitter account, whatever you have. Yeah, so uh, my Twitter account is the best way to get in touch with me is uh, like Kiviu on, or Kiviv on Twitter. Mm -hmm. And um, the research department, I um, it's bl.internet-sicherheit.de. We'll probably just put it in the, in the links yeah, of the show yeah, notes. Yeah. And yeah. <laughs> so thank you. It was lots of fun. And uh, I understood now Ethereum a lot better. And uh, yeah, uh, it, it sounds like really usable technology. It's not just hype. It's just uh, somehow related to the other stuff we are doing. It's not a complete, completely alien technology. It's something we can actually understand, right? That's, that's a challenge in this blockchain community, finding the people that also understand the tech and don't ride only the hype wave. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks. See you next Thanks time. a lot.